It'll be an unusual service this morning in that I will not be uh, preaching exp- you know, expositorily. I have a topical message for you today. Our congregation is facing um, a wonderful thing, a good thing, and that is we are considering and contemplating calling an elder from one of our membership. And so it's our duty, as uh, Gary and I would be the elders here, to, to educate our congregation and to teach us what the scriptures have to say about the qualifications for an elder and how to go through that process. And so for those who do not know that, you may be thinking that, well, I was hoping to hear the gospel. I'll see what I can do for that. I'll try to bring in some of the gospel into this message because obviously some of the qualifications for an elder is he must know what the gospel is. And so this message may have some doctrine in it. It may have some teachings. It, I guess you can call it didactic. That's what the theologians would call it. But um, there'll be some meat here. That's why it's so cold. We're going to be hanging meat today. <laughs> it's uh, freezing in here. I apologize for that. But uh, it is what it is. The doctrine we're looking at today can be defined as this. The church has the responsibility to identify those gifted and biblically qualified to be elders to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Let me read that again. It's uh, important for us to know what type of goal we want to achieve. The church has the responsibility to identify those gifted and biblically qualified to be elders to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. And so it is an important task for us. We also, as a congregation, we have embraced the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. I would like to read one paragraph from that confession to you. Chapter 26 and paragraph 9, we read this. The way appointed by Christ for the calling of any person fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit unto the office of bishop or elder, that's the same, in a church is that he be chosen thereunto by the common suffrage. That word suffrage means by vote. By the vote of the church itself and solemnly set apart by fasting and prayer with imposition of hands of the eldership of the church, which means that if we choose to call someone who has the gifts that we can see that God has ordained, then the elders would pray and lay their hands on them in a service to verify the ordination of God. But it is common for the church to to engage itself, and it is the mind of the church that must be calling this person. Because we must recognize and must be taught how to recognize the gifts that a man should have. And so we will be looking at that today. I would like to read a passage from Ephesians chapter 4 to introduce it into the topic. In Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11, we read this. And this is about Christ providing the necessities to his church. Christ giving the gifts to his church. And he gave... The apostles, he's giving apostles to the church, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness 
and deceitful schemes. And so you see the Apostle Paul is saying, we have been given these gifts by Christ, by God. He is the one that says, my people need a shepherd. I will provide them these things. And so it is, we're looking at this today. God will provide elders, deacons, teachers to equip his saints to do the things that must be done. So let's go to the passage that we read earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we'll go verse by verse through this and try to understand what this means. And verse 1, chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So let's right away recognize that the New Testament church has the office of an elder, and it is indeed an honorable office performing noble tasks. Now, I don't say that because I'm an elder. I'm not trying to elevate myself. I'm not trying to say that uh, I need to be honored or no, uh, I don't need to be recognized for noble tasks. I don't want to elevate myself. It is the office that God has said must exist. It is the office that requires our people to honor it, to know that the tasks that are done by an elder are noble tasks. So holding this office does not give a man uh, honor. The office itself has the honor. The man must earn that honor by living up to the tasks that are required in eldership. I will do my best not to dishonor it. Every man who holds his office can be called an elder or a bishop, but it must be understood that the things that elders do are considered noble and they are considered good. That is the tasks that they need to perform. If they do them well, if they do what they're supposed to do, we should not understand that we become noble by holding the office. It is the office itself. We want the scriptures to be clear, and we need to understand what those qualifications are. And so we begin with verse number two of this chapter, and we'll begin to see what they are. Verse number two, therefore, having understood that the office is a noble office with noble tasks, therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable to teach. So we can see right here in this verse that the eldership is an important task, a noble work, but it is imperative that the candidate meets these high standards. Now these are the things that a, that a, that a person must have. You'll notice in the next verse there will be characteristics of what a person should not have. He should not be a drunkard, but he must be someone who has these characteristics. These are the positive characteristics. One of them, at the very beginning, says he must be above reproach. Now, sometimes people use that idea of saying he must be perfect. He must be absolutely without spot and wrinkle. Well, we know that the Lord Jesus is only going to meet that requirement. But if we look at the shadows of what the, what the priests had to meet, we can see that there were many things that were done that said a priest cannot have leprosy. A priest can only have one wife. As a matter of fact, if a priest had more than one wife, he was commanded to divorce the other one. And so there are things that we must follow as patterns, but we must understand that there is only one shadow maker. 
There's one shadow maker. That's the Lord Jesus. And therefore, we use the shadows to see what the substance is. And so we use these things to help us understand. So they must be above approach, reproach among the congregation. Because the congregation must know this person. They must know. Oh, I know Art. Sorry, Art. I had to use your name. I know this person. He is above reproach. He has not done anything that I have seen that would bring dishonor to God. He must be respected. He must be held in esteem among people. He must have earned this by his behavior, by his doctrines that he believes in his heart that produces his actions. And then it says he must be the husband of one wife. Now, I, when I was younger, I used to believe that a man could never be divorced. However, we understand this, that he must not divorce a wife without biblical reason. Because even the Levitical priesthood were commanded. If you have more than one wife, you've got to divorce one. He must be a one-woman man. That's the context of what this is saying. A one-woman man. He cannot be a womanizer. He cannot be flirtatious with other women when he has his own home and his own wife. He must be someone that's not mindful or to be, in his own mind, a polygamist. I wish I had more than one wife. There, you know, during this time, this was a time in which many people had more than one wife. And so the way that uh, Paul introduces this to Timothy is that we want to be sure that we learn what the shadows are telling us. And that is, he must be a one-woman man. That phrase covers a lot of bases. We also know that he must be sober-minded. Now, sober-minded sometimes bring to mind that he must be somber, that he must be somewhat always serious. But he should be serious about serious things. He should be sensible and composed. Someone that is not prone to panic or alarm. He should be able to see a situation that needs action without flying off the handle. He needs to have the experience of having gone through difficult situations or having gone through and solved problems. He must be someone that is actually respectable. People must, in our congregation, see this individual and say, now that's the person I respect. He's someone that understands what he believes, but he also embraces what he believes. He's not dualistic in his heart and mind. He's not a hypocrite. He's not someone that says this and does that. He is someone that is true, a true-hearted man. The congregation must have respect for this man. But it's not just respect from anyone, because sometimes the world can respect despicable people. And so we as a congregation must hold a high regard for the fruits of the Spirit. We must have a high regard for godliness, so that our respect actually is reflecting what it should, so that we can seek out the proper man, so that we can recognize what are the gifts of the Spirit, what are the callings of God upon a man. We won't want to have some type of popularity contest or someone that says, you know, he would look really good if we had his picture on the website. Look at that hair. Look how tall he is. He's handsome. Or whatever we may want to see. This is not the kind of qualities. We need to have a person who is respected by a congregation where the congregation is mature enough to value godliness and Christ. And, Christ. and so he must also be a man that's hospitable. Not someone that, you know, I do my very best to avoid everyone. I just get along with people like that. That's not the idea here. We must have someone who is willing and is affectionate and caring to others. 
providing when he can. He must not be with a, draw, a withdrawn person, someone that's so introverted he never speaks. Now, I'm not saying that uh, a man who is you know, a quiet and shy person is not qualified. I'm not saying that. But I am also saying that a person should not be, he, he should not have an inability to relate his affection to people. He must have that skill. Abraham and Lot were these type of people. When they saw a man of God or someone that loved God come and visit him, he said, come into my home and let me feed you. That's hospitable. And I would say that if anyone comes into this congregation seeking the bread of heaven, what kind of a man do we want? Someone to ignore them? No. They see someone who needs the bread of heaven. Come and sit. Come and hear the word of God. They must have a natural or shall we say, at least a skill that can be developed when it comes to teaching, to preaching. Now, sometimes people look at this and they say, well, that's the only thing we really need. Who cares what he's like at home? Who cares in this and that? I want someone that can teach me. I want someone that doesn't put me to sleep. I want someone that really rings that bell for me. Well, the candidate must have mental gifts. They must have cognitive abilities. And every once in a while, use a word you don't understand, right? Okay. No, we must have someone that's able to express himself in a way that he is able to communicate the truth. We must have lied a, a wide latitude here because people are different. Some people just communicate better in one way than others. Some people use their arms. Some people just they just they just know how to communicate. But are they effective in that? I've seen people here make these type of statements where. Boy, that guy should be a preacher. He has the gift of gab. Ever hear that? That always irritated me. It always irritated me to me that, that people would think that a preacher, the only qualifications is that he can just keep on talking. Um, and now you're looking at your watch, right? <laughs> I think this has to do, I have met people before where sometimes I would prefer being around men that, you know, when they do say something, they're worth listening to. But sometimes when men have a way of speaking, there are so many words, I'm kind of looking in my own mind saying, why are his lips continuously moving? We must have the ability to speak what needs to be said without, shall we say, being the center of the attention all the time. Because a man does not want to have your eyes look at them. They want your eyes to see Christ. The ability to communicate and say, there is a God who has died for sinners and he loves you. Would you please cast your eyes upon him? We need to not have entertainment. We need to not have someone who is able to always, I guess, make you feel like that was fun. We need to hear the word of God and we need to have someone preach it from a knowledge and from an affection from his own heart. Let's go to verse number three. They must not be a drunkard, not a violent person, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. So we can see right here that uh, the main idea of this verse is that though we have high standards of what an elder should be, we also have negative things that he is not allowed to be. And so he should not be a drunkard. Now I'm going to take this a little bit further and say he should not be immoderate in his life. 
He should not be controlled by his passions and be a slave to these type of liberties that people are allowed to enjoy, but he should be able to govern himself in this way. He should not be a violent man. Now, violence can be more than just physically striking people. There are some people that have a mental violence that they cannot control. They have an emotional violence that seems to leak out of them all the time. It must be that this man can control himself. He must not be a man of violence in his heart and mind and his hands. Um, this will be seen in individuals by how well they have developed their patience in dealing with others. Sometimes um, in working just in the, in the world, in secular jobs, I've seen managers try to manage people where basically the only thing that works is some type of violence. Well, I'm just going to have to slap you around with a regulation. Sometimes a man needs to be stern. But we must be careful of considering a man for eldership who enjoys the harshness of controlling. We must see a man that tries to move people in the proper direction, to point them to Christ, to encourage them to self-discipline. And if they cannot, then the church should and properly, like a man would manage his own home, to manage them with discipline with firmness. We want a firm man, but not a violent man. We want a man that's able to do things because he loves people and cares for their outcome, rather than saying, well, it's about time people listen to me. I love it when people snap to attention when I walk into a room, when my children stop playing their games when I enter the room, when my wife instantly does dishes when I walk into the kitchen. You know, I just, I know, it just makes me feel like a man. But we need to have a person and recognize the qualities of people that love other people for their souls. And sometimes that love must be firm. It must be firm. They must not be quarrelsome. Sometimes people walk around with a chip on their shoulder, just waiting for someone to say the wrong thing. They're just looking for trouble. Because they're, you know, they're good in a good scrap. They always win those harsh debates. Now, I'm not talking about talking of doctrine. I enjoy debating over doctrine. I love to sit with my friends and say, what do you think of this? But I'm not trying to make divisive issues surface. We should not be squabbling. We should not be divisive. But we should be caring in this. Courage, you know, with courage enough to bring up truth, but also kind enough not to be harming people with it. You can take the truth and beat people around the head and shoulders with it. You can be cruel with the truth, but the truth is something that can cut the heart. We must, we must recognize that it is the power of the Holy Spirit to convict of sin. And if we don't see the Holy Spirit doing, we should not pick up that and do it for him. We don't need that type of thing. He should not be a lover of money. I don't think we need, I don't, that, there's, there's not that much damage in this congregation of hiring someone who is in love with money. This church does not have the money to be coveted. But it doesn't mean that an individual doesn't have it within him 
to just love his life by, by having all the things that he possibly can. Worldly gain is not part of an elder's life where this is the only thing he wants. If we see an inordinate desire for worldly gain, this is a bad sign. He must not be driven by greed or covetousness. Now, every man deals with this. Every person deals with this. However, there is a difference between being responsible, between being a good steward, and just wanting to hoard things and covet them and have more than the other person. There is a balance. There is a balance of wisdom that says, I'll not be owned by these things, but I will use them for the glory of God. Let's go to verse number four. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. I know of very few verses like this that have caused so much trouble in its interpretation. Sometimes um, I've seen uh, elders and pastors try to uh, meet this qualification by being brutes in their home, by being bullies in their home, by making sure that their children are actually fearful of them. Now, it's one thing to have children be afraid of offending you. And it's one thing to have children actually honor you. But for a child to be cravenly afraid of their father, that's a danger sign. That's a danger sign to be cravenly afraid of their father. We used to be that way with God when we heard the law preached to us. But once we heard the gospel, no longer are we afraid of God. We don't tremble at the smoke on Mount Sinai. We say it is the holiness of God and we are seeing the bush that burns without being consumed. How wonderful it is to be in Christ, to be in the presence of a holy God and not be consumed because we are preserved in Christ. Isn't it a good thing to know that the one who protects you and keeps you, that you are afraid of offending them, that they are protecting you, that they watch for your souls, that they watch for you. And so when it comes to... Um, when it says he must manage his own household well, I, see, I think that this is one of those common things where how good of a manager is he? Will he manage the household of God? Well, let's take the most obvious thing and see if he manages his own home. Does he manage uh, his own home well? In other words, does he have those spiritual gifts of a normal Christian and then work these gifts into a good skill set to where he's able to actually perform what he knows is right in his heart in administering it to his own family, to his wife, to his children. Does he have that skill? Because that's the kind of man we want. That's the kind of person we seek to have in the pulpit. Some may not have a household to evaluate, so this verse might not be appropriate to them. But we should not seek the idea of, you know, one way around this is to make sure that no pastors ever get married. Be like the priesthood. No children. Well, let me tell you another thing. Why should our congregation have confidence in a man to steer us on how to train children when they've never had one themselves? But I'm just saying, you don't have to be married. You don't have to be. But we should not require, like a priesthood, should abstain from having a wife or children. That's not right. When I was uh, working, going to Oracle uh, over in Orlando, uh, I went on a, a van that had all these different passengers on it because I, was, I wanted to save money on gas. And so I would rode to Orlando with my own manager that worked there. And uh, I, would, I was one of those people that everyone knew, he's got six kids 
And I've heard all the jokes, all the jokes about how many kids I have and so on. But I'll tell you, once people understand I have six kids, the people that want to give me advice on how to raise them, raise them come out of the woodwork. <laughs> and the ones who want to tell me how to raise my kids are the ones who don't have any. And so we here must understand that when we try to say these are the qualifications of an elder, we have to, we have to say to ourselves, I want someone to help me that knows my problems. Because, uh, frankly, if I didn't have any kids, I, think, I don't think I could provide very much advice on it. But all I can say is, uh, if, if a man has a family, look at that family. Take a look at it. Does he manage his home well? Take a look at Abraham, for example. You may say, well, he had the perfect family. Tell that to Ishmael. Okay? He managed his family well, but he did not have the perfect family. What about Jacob? Perfect family. Jacob, the conniver, and Esau, the brute. Now, Abraham managed his family well because he taught them, he trained them. But we are not the ones that can touch the heart. Only the Holy Spirit can. But we must say, does he manage his family well? Verse number five. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And so this is the logic of Paul saying, from the lesser to the greater. Let's take a look at what he does do and see if it's what we want him to do in the church. And we can apply that not just to the managing of his home. Let's just say he has a business. Well, how does he run his business? Oh, he cheats everyone he can. Well, then that might be a red flag. Does he lose all the money? He always is, he's always in debt. Well, that might be a red flag. Does he treat people improperly? Whatever he manages, how does he do it? But this family is one good way to check and to see. Let's go on to verse number six. He must, be a, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, I like the way this is interpreted in the ESV uh, instead of the KGV, because it really gives us a, a better understanding. It means that he must be a seasoned soldier. He must be someone with real life experience as a Christian. He must not be, and the word implies, newly planted like, like a, little, a little sprout. You put a seed in the ground and it just breaks the ground and you say, hey, let's harvest that. No, it's not ready. There's no fruit on it. We haven't seen how it goes. And so a new Christian is a newly planted Christian and they should not be put into this position. It's not fair to them. It's not fair to the church. It's not a good thing. When I say the word fair, I mean something that's beautiful, not just. It's not beautiful for that person to be put into that position. And so it really doesn't mean a physical age. We may have a man who's 60 years old, who has lots of life experience, but he doesn't know how to be a Christian. And he's a new Christian. Just because he's old doesn't mean he's qualified. Nor does it mean just because he's young that he's not. But what it, because you see, Paul is writing this to Timothy, a relatively young man. He told Timothy, don't let others despise your youth. But he must be a mature Christian a seasoned soldier, so to speak. It must mean that it has nothing to do with physical age, but spiritual maturity. When I was in the Army, I was a uh, chapel activity specialist. That's a, 
That's a glorified clerk that worked for chaplains. I would take care of all their needs. I would set up the chapel services. I would make sure they got what they needed. And I had one chaplain, my first chaplain, who was the best chaplain I ever served. And this guy came in as a captain because that's what they, they give, that honorary rank to chaplains. And he was an educated man. However, he was not always an educated man. When he was previously in the military, in the army, he was a warrant officer. Now, I don't know if you know what that means, but a warrant officer is someone who used to be an enlisted man. And he worked his way up through the ranks. And the officers that, for, that he served recognized there's something about this guy that he is really good. He should be an officer. And so instead of going through the ranks of going through an education process and going to the war college and everything else, they say, let's make him a warrant officer. You don't address a warrant officer with sir. You call him mister, but you don't call him sergeant. He has the respect, but he has the world life experience. And I'll give you an example. John Owens is an officer. That guy's educated. That guy is well, he is well spoken. John Owens is a theologian. But John Bunyan, his contemporary, uh, I don't think he has very many degrees. He's a, he's a tinkerer. You know what that is? He's a blacksmith. He goes from town to town fixing people's pots and pans. And yet, he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, which is the most read book in the world other than the Bible itself. He is a warrant officer. Thank you, Mr. Bunyan. He is an officer. He is in that position. And so when it comes to real life experience, sometimes it takes a long time for a person to gain that experience and then to take advantage of that. And that's what we want. We want someone with real life experience. And I'm not, gonna, I'm not saying anything against young men coming out of seminaries. They're good. I'm glad they're educated, but they're green. So come on board and learn. But for the eldership, we want someone who is able to do this. He must not be a novice. Let's go to verse number eight. I mean, number seven. We don't have verses eight. Verse number seven. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Now, we spoke about his reputation within the congregation. And now we're going to address the fact that he has a reputation outside the congregation. What, do the world, what does the world think of this guy? I mean, after all, there is no one here that does not, that has zero reputation outside of this church. Everyone is known by somebody. You're known by your neighbors. You're known by your places your, of where you work, by your, your companions at your, at your job, uh, all types of things. A lot of people know you. Sometimes it's like, well, I, I hope people don't find out everything about me. Well, why not? Why not? Why haven't you just become you? Why, have, why aren't you you just wherever you are? And so there is a reputation by everyone. Art has told me a story about um, where he works, and they say they never share certain things with him. Well, isn't that kind of selfish? Well, it depends on the things, isn't it? You know why they don't share certain things with him? Because they know he's a Christian. I can remember one time I was working on a dock in Orlando. I just moved here. I was a young man, didn't have any money, so I decided to work casual dock. That means you go out and you unload semi-trailers and so on. And I was looking at my manifest, had it in my hand. I was looking at all the things, looking at the pallets of bolts I had to unload that night. And as I walked into the back of the trailer, the door was a little bit down. 
and I walked right into that door. It hit me right here, and I walked into it so hard, I went right down into the ground. I thought I was going to pass out. But, you know, I didn't. I, I got up and a great big knot on my head, and so I just continued to work. About an hour later, a guy working the door right next to me came into me, and he said to me, you're a Christian, aren't you? I said, well, how? yeah, how did you know that? And he said, nobody walks into a door like that and doesn't cuss and swear for 45 minutes. <laughs> That's what he told me. I didn't say anything to him other than I, things I did not do. Last week, I was in my office at my job, and a young man came into my cubicle around where we, where we work, and he says, I want to ask you a question. He said this, are you one of the original Israelites lost in the desert? And uh, I said, am I that old? Yes. I'll never live that down, huh? And so he says, why do I ask him, why do you ask me that? He says, because everyone upstairs is trying to figure out what kind of Christian you are. And I said, so I gave him a 15-minute history on Reformed baptism, Reformed Baptists. And so the idea is this. No matter where you are, people know you. What type of reputation does the man have in the community? Because, you know, are people going to say, yeah, 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 I know that guy. What a busybody. Or is he going to say, that guy, yeah, he's a straight shooter. People know and people have, have opinions. Is that guy, do you, would you do business with him? Or is he devious and conniving? Or does he have a sincere reputation of being honest? Is he hardworking? Or is he harsh and unfeeling? Or is he empathetic? Is he what the world would say God-fearing? Or is he sleazy and depraved with his humor when no one is looking? So, the candidate, if the candidate has a less than stellar reputation in the community, I have to ask this question. Is it deserved? Because there are people, godly people, who have been slandered. There are godly people who are hated for their stand against sin. And so the question is, not that he has to have a perfect reputation, but does he have a reputation that he deserves? And so we have to keep this in mind. I have one practical application, and it has to do with not only the qualification for an elder, but simply the qualifications of a normal Christian. Because sometimes we can say, you know, that guy, he will do a great job. But is he even a Christian? That's the question. Sometimes a congregation will want someone to be a, 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 an elder simply because, oh, he looks like elder material. But they have not considered the idea that does he meet the normal qualifications of a Christian? I'm going to read to you Matthew chapter 5, verse, starting with verse 2, the Sermon on the Mount. So listen carefully. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be fat satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God, of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I used to think when I was a young man, just a boy, that uh, these qualifications were like this. You know who gets the earth? The meek. If you're meek, you get the earth. I don't know what the, you know, what the others get. You know, and so that, that's what I thought. But when we look at this, we must understand that a Christian has all of these things. A Christian has all of these characteristics. Now, sometimes by temperament and by God's providence, some of these things are elevated. Sometimes a person is more meek than he is merciful. Or he's more merciful than he's meek. Or he's more pure in heart than he is a peacemaker. Sometimes it's difficult for someone to be a peacemaker. Sometimes their temperament is just like that. But there are all these things are in them. But sometimes they have a natural inclination for some of these characteristics. But they must be there and it must be the foundation upon which God has provided gifts to an individual. And say, this gift of all of these things... The very fact that they are peacemakers, they want peace. The very fact that they, they, they are merciful to others because God has been merciful to them. And that they have seen how they have mourned for their own sin. But we understand that when a man has been gifted, he must have certain capabilities. Just because he is a good Christian doesn't mean he should always be an elder. If he does not have the mental capacity, the ability to teach... The ability to have certain um, skills that have been developed based upon these spiritual gifts. How does he manage his home? That type of thing. He must have that ability to discern. To know when someone needs to be corrected. When someone needs to be encouraged. When someone needs to be exhorted. When someone needs to be condemned. Praised. He must be able to identify and promote orthodox doctrines required for the instruction in righteousness. So, this comes from a seasoned Christian with real-life experience. They must have practical Christianity, not just theoretical Christianity. Because anybody can quote the confession, but only a man can hold it in his heart when he has real-life experience of his faith. And so with this, I want to say this, that we should narrow this down once we learn what the qualifications of an elder are. Make sure of these two things. Does he love Christ? And does he love the people for whom Christ died? These things. These are important. And so with this, I want to conclude with a passage from the Apostle Paul. And it's about a letter to the Philippians. The church in Philippi and uh, this is a situation where Paul wants to send someone to help him out you know who he's going to send Timothy listen to what he says but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state for I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state do you see what he's done? I know that this man will love you. Therefore, I, I send him to you. This is what God has done for us. We have a small congregation. Not very many elders. I mean, we, we have seemingly, seemingly a lot of elders for the, for the number we have. But you see, 
I believe that we need them because, frankly, we're getting old and we don't have that much money. And you know what we have? We have people that are willing to serve and to love and to take care of you. And they are going to be like-minded to naturally care for your state. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Holy Father, we now ask that you bless your people. Holy Spirit, convict them of their sins. Cast their eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you loved us and you would not be satisfied until you saved your people by dying for their sins, that you would give them your own righteousness if they would simply repent and turn from their sins and cast their souls upon you. And so we pray, Lord, that this morning's service would be a teachable time. Let your people understand our need and let them see the ordaining hand that you have provided to us. Help us now to be serious and sober-minded about what we are to think about and let us perform those duties that you would have us do. Be with your people. Be with all of your churches. May sinners be saved for the glory of our Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.